at Orlando, site of the 2001 WNBA All-Star event. I am so excited. Forward from the Cleveland Rockers, Chastity Melvin. At first, you have to have a goal. You have to have a vision for what you want for your life, and that's in anything. I never dreamed that I would play in the NBA. I just always had a feeling that they would have a women's professional league by the time I grew up. I just kind of stuck with it. The North Carolina Sports Hall of Fame will grow in membership. Chastity Melvin. Melvin led NC State to the 1998 Final Four. Inside, good catch by Kansi. Leads it for Melvin. That's where toughness comes in to achieving that vision. And, you know, it takes a lot of sacrifice. It takes a lot of confidence. It takes a lot of perseverance. It takes uh, being adaptable, being flexible. It takes the discipline. Discipline to do the things you don't want to do in order to have what you want. It takes the discipline to say no to the things that will make you less than your best. So that's what toughness is to me. Welcome to the Toughness Podcast. My name is Patty Steinfort, your host, and we have a special guest today who represents a huge area of growth in sports, but also in the national psyche in the United States. A former WNBA player, played 12 years across multiple teams in the WNBA, also four-year player at NC State and now in their Hall of Fame, as I understand it. And now, as an assistant coach at the Phoenix Mercury, welcome to the show, Chastity Melvin. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. And with the Olympics Ticking along in the background, there's obviously a lot more attention on all sorts of sports, but particularly as far as women's sports go, basketball, the WNBA is right up there as a, as a leader in that field. We'll, we'll talk about your role and your experience through that in a bit, but I'm curious to start from the start. Uh, well, not right from the start, but perhaps your, your childhood or your teenage years. Back then, and I'm not trying to say how long ago it was, but back then it was like it was probably not something you could dream of having a 30-year career in pro sports as a female, right? So how does it happen that you grow up as a kid and the dream grows in you to be a professional athlete when it wasn't that much of a dumb thing back then? You know, I was born in a family of faith, so I was raised with like all the, I guess what people call now, life coaching, creating a vision, uh, speaking things into existence. I mean, all of that was kind of derived from the Bible, you know, make, write the vision, make it plain. So that's kind of how I was raised. My father raised me that way. So I actually, the first time I picked up a basketball and I started playing, I immediately fell in love with it. And I started writing that down as my goal. You know, like I was going to go to college and I was going to play pro. So it is very weird coming up during that time. I watched the NBA with my dad and my brothers. There were no women leagues around to watch, but I don't know. I just kind of stuck with it. And, you know, my dad was always like supporting us and believing in us. So he didn't like discredit it. I'm remembering as you described that my own backyard battles with my younger sister, who also had a, <laughs> her eyes on being a professional athlete. But for her, it moved on to different things. And we used to talk about the NBA and whether she could play in the NBA, right? And right. did you watch the NBA with that in mind? Like, were you thinking you were going to play against those guys or what was the dream? I never dreamed that I would play in the NBA. I just always had a feeling that they would have a women's professional league by the time I grew up. So right. I was 11 at the time and I just kept telling, you know, like, well, they will when I finally, you know, get to that point. I just never let go of that dream. Maybe because I was from a small town and I was super naive, but it's just, I don't know, you know, like if you, 
I mean, not trying to have, you know, compare myself to big time celebrities, but if you ever talk to them and hear their stories, they had a knack for believing in something they really couldn't see and just kind of speaking right. to it. And so right. that was my thing. It was always in the back of my mind. It was, I laid at, up at night dreaming about it. So it was just my thing. Yeah. But when we have, well, this is a question we ask all the guests. I'm going to jump straight to it for you because you've kind of touched on one of the semi-common answers there. And the question is, what, how do you define toughness? So you've had a career across, obviously, a super successful, one of the greatest of all time in your college career, a decade plus in the WNBA. You're now coaching at the highest level. You've seen a lot. And I'm curious if that's what you would describe as toughness in the ability to see something that doesn't exist yet is that, and hang on to it and persist, even though there's no reason why that should come to be. Or is it something else to you? No, I do think toughness starts with being a visionary. Because at first you have to have a goal. You have to have a vision for what you want for your life. And that's in anything. But obviously there's different traits to, and that's where toughness comes in to achieving that vision. And, you know, it takes a lot of sacrifice. It takes a lot of confidence. It takes a lot of perseverance. It takes being adaptable, being flexible. And, you know, it takes the discipline, discipline to do the things you don't want to do in order to have what you want. It takes the discipline to say no to the things that would make you less than your best. So that's what toughness is to me. But to be tough, you have to be have a sense of mental toughness, physical toughness to reach that vision. Yeah, you, you, you mentioned physical toughness there, which is a great jumping off point into this story, which for our listeners, any of our listeners who follow the WNBA or women's basketball, you've probably heard this story. If you haven't, then I'm going to put a little warning here. You might get squeamish as we relate this tale. Jesse, you had a horrendous injury during your career that would probably sit most people down for the rest of their lives that may not get involved in any physical contact. You not only recovered from the injury return playing, it's, it's something that you've spoken about a little bit before, but can you talk us through that injury? I'm not even going to spoil it with a leader, but uh, can you describe just that day going into that game, what happened to you? and how that has built your toughness potentially moving forward or whether it just revealed what was already there? Well, it was just a really freaky accident. Actually, I was playing for the Chicago Sky, and as most often, guards try to come steal the ball from the post players. And I was actually on the block, and I was going into my move, my offensive move, and the guard was coming around trying to steal it. But instead of intercepting the pass, she stuck her finger, her fingers went in my eye and dislocated my eyeball. Yes. Oof. Uh, so, wow. So I even know the story, but even as you describe it there, I'm like squirming. For people who can't see, I'm squirming on the screen. I'm like closing my eyes because even just the thought of having someone's up. Anyone who's been poked in the eye playing a sport, it's not fun. But it's next level. They dislocated your eyeball out of the socket. Yeah, so the way the doctor explained it to me is that, you know, it's just like dislocating your finger because she pushed it. So basically, it's like you burst all the muscles and they're just stretched to a certain extent. But like, obviously, you can't lose your eye. Like, it's not going to, you know mm. what I mean? Like, but it's just like kind of dislocated as far as it can go because the muscles are still hanging on, but they're just all stretched. So it's yeah. just like basically dislocated. Yeah. And so, What's your awareness at that moment? You're clearly something's wrong. You've been poked in the eye and you're probably grabbing it. But are you aware that like this is not a normal poke in the eye? Like are you feeling like, holy shit, there might be some real damage here? 
Oh yeah, for me definitely. I was I was very blessed. I didn't have a lot of injuries playing, so my teammates, the game didn't even stop because I rarely fall. You know, if I get hurt, I twist my ankle, whatever. I keep playing. You know, I was from the old school generation, so it had to be something <laughs> serious if like I went down. So they kept playing, and then my teammate recognized I didn't get back, and they saw me laying on the floor because it was basically like a boxer. I basically blacked out. And so then they kind of rushed back to me because you couldn't see it. Like the ref didn't yeah. call a foul. You didn't, he didn't, it was just like a freaky play. So you didn't even get a foul. You I didn't even get a foul. The play was not stopped. Yeah. Oh, smokes. Wow. Yeah, and so great. then you're out of the rest of the game, I assume. And so the oh, doctor yeah. assesses, tells you what's going on with your eye. That's a pretty shocking thing to hear about something that's happened to you, right? That could, right. and it's not just like, oh, I broke my bone, I'll come back. This is something that could affect you for the rest of your life. At that moment, you kind of have a choice. And it may not be a conscious choice while you're a professional athlete because you always might soldier on, but there's a significant like tipping point there of like, do I go and do this again? Right. How far into your career are you at this point? It was, that was my ninth year. Right. There was a quote the other day around the stuff that Simone Biles is dealing with that it's actually a, a traditional Eastern philosophy teaching, but it goes something like this. Sometimes the biggest struggle we have is resisting the struggle that we currently have. And that's actually the layers of pain that we can put on ourselves, obviously physical injury, but then starting to consider what this means and why me and how long and what else it's going to do to me. I assume that started a lot of noise in your head after that of, wow, this is like not your average injury. Is that the case? Or are you a blessed person who's able to just buckle down and go back at it? I actually, I was just praying that I didn't have to have surgery. So for me, it was it was such a freaky accident. They had to call in an eye surgeon and all that. So they gave me like a steroid to kind of help with the swelling. Because by the time I got to the hospital, my eye had just swollen, just shut completely. And on the way to the hospital and just sitting there, I could kind of feel the muscles kind of contracting. And then my eye just shut completely. So that was, I just, you know, I have such a strong faith. It was just like, okay, God, you know, I just don't want to, not be able to finish my career you know I wasn't even thinking about 10 years from now or not being able to have vision in this site or like I was just thinking okay contacts okay I got I still got one good eye you know at the end of the day I was just thinking of what could I control like I didn't want to end my career on a freak accident you know that that was just my prayer it was just like I just want to be able to play again and so for me fortunately that night you know everyone was praying and it was just a lot of good energy, a lot of positive vibes. And I ended up, I didn't have to have the surgery. So I, I was on a steroid for two weeks. I couldn't play. I could it was crazy though. Cause it's like one of those head injuries sort of. So they treat it that way. Like you can't basically exercise, move. You don't even want to sneeze. Cause then that puts more pressure around that area. So it was kind of, you know, that was humbling. But once I finished the two weeks, my eye was still slightly shut, but I didn't have to have surgery. So it, it took about wow. four weeks to actually fully recover from it. Wow. That's incredible. It only took four weeks. So you, when you consider what happened, it sounds like something right. going to take yeah. much longer than that. Looking at that part of your career, let's separate the playing and the coaching side of things. So in the playing side, that's a significant incident, right? But are there other things that you look back at? college or pros where you're like that actually shaped me that's where I kind of learned part of 
what I see as toughness. You gave that definition earlier that part of it is vision, but there's also the discipline and the work ethic and all that. Are there other parts of your career that you credit with, like, I wasn't tough until that happened? Or is it, I was born tough, I was raised tough, and these things just revealed it? There's tons of things. I mean, high school, just the, having the fortitude to come out of a small town. You know, I was just from very humble beginnings. So there was... A small town way. Yeah, shout yeah, out I so you can represent. Yeah, shout out to Roseboro, North Carolina. Population less than maybe 1,200 people. There were 90 people in my senior class, huh. a graduating class of high school. So, you know, everybody knew each other. So for me, I mean, just the toughness to have the fortitude to, one, go outside of my comfort zone. That happens with a lot of rural kids, a lot of small town kids. They're very family oriented. No one goes outside that radius. So I was pretty tough to have a vision to like, I'm going to play basketball. I had to travel with people I didn't know because my parents really couldn't afford it. So basketball was always taking me to uncomfortable situations and very new surroundings. So for high school, I just had to be tough in that sense. And then once I got to college, it was the same thing. It was like, I was a tiny fish amongst sharks and whales and everything going to, I mean, I went from 90 people graduating my senior class to, you know, a big university with 300 people sitting in a classroom. And on top of that, playing a sport. So that made me tough too. So I had to learn how to adapt, be flexible, especially disciplined, being the first time away from my family and my home. And um, then I went on to the WNBA and the pros, like I graduated from college, tough as an athlete to actually do that in four years without any hiccups or just setbacks. And I had a fabulous career, went to the final four my senior year. I get drafted. I reach my dream. I go into the first professional women's league and that was called the ABL. But it folded three months later. So here I am, I'm 20, 21. I achieved my dream. I'm telling everybody I'm playing pro, everyone's hype. And then the league just shuts down right before Christmas, the, my right. favorite holiday. Wow. So, I mean, I, this is great. I didn't see this one coming. You, you've gone from, and, and it wasn't just like you kind of brushed over your college career there. You turn up, you said a small fish with sharks. I assume you were recruited to some degree, like you turn out to be a pretty handy player. So, you, you go in there, you have one of the greatest college careers of all time, definitely at NC State, which ends up with you in the Hall of Fame. So you, you're a superstar at this school. Then yeah. you get drafted in the first round, 11th yeah. pick, I think. So, so, well, no, actually, just- so I got drafted to the first professional league. And a lot of people kind of – the WNBA has taken over, so they don't know that there was an ABL. Okay. ABL was the first professional league. It was going on. And then the WNBA started two years later. So two years – was this like purgatory? Like, how did what, what happened to fill that time? This what is not on to, your on your on the bio that I was fed. What happened in that two years? Well, I was a senior in college, and they had already had a successful season. And so, when I graduated, the WNBA had just started that previous year. And so, I had a choice of either entering my name into the ABL draft or the WNBA draft, and I chose the ABL. And everyone had a fit. But for me, the ABL had all the players that I followed, and they played year-round. And so for me, they had the best basketball players. At the time, Don Staley was playing in the ABL, Teresa Edwards, like all of the greats. And Donovan was coaching. So I knew my history, and so that's where I wanted to be. And they were the first. They were the ones that said, hey, we're going to try to have a professional women's team. So 
I was kind of loyal to that whole philosophy. Like, hey, they really cared about us. And then it's kind of like right. the WNBA came and was like, the NBA was like, oh, you know, no, we're the powerhouse. <laughs> oh, look what they're doing. We can make money there <laughs> <Yeah>. too. <laughs> right, right. So for me, I got drafted and then it folded. So it folded three months later. All right. And, and so you had like, to sit for two years. What'd you do? To fill I had to time? sit for a year. I had to sit for a year. Mm-hmm. And that was probably the most mentally tough thing I had been through since. I mean, yeah, that to was that the point. first. To that point, that was the hardest thing that I probably ever had to go through. Just mentally, because you achieve your dream and then you lose it. And on top of that, you just don't know where the way everything ended. Like we were practicing with our team. And then they just shut everything down. Like, there was no meeting. There was no – it was just – they told the coach. That. And the uncertainty of what's coming next. Like, it yeah. seems like you went through the COVID shutdown before everyone went through the COVID shutdown. You, you yeah. did it 20 years ago. I did it 20 years ago. I had everything just shut down, and it's just such a painful feeling. And then I was such mm. a young person to have to deal with that was – and then people just asking questions. So unfortunately uh, for me, I had a great support system with my family. During that time, another rookie that had played with me actually ended up committing suicide after that happened. So I was mentally all over the place, but I ended up getting an agent and I went to Spain about two months after Christmas or a month and a half after Christmas, I got a job in Spain. And again, I'm traveling out of the world, you know, not uh, out of the United States, you know, like I'm from a small town and I'm actually going to Spain by myself. So with all of that happening, then I had to get on a flight, 12 hour flight to Spain to a city, obviously, I mean, I had never been to Spain and it was just, that was a mentally taxing year, you know, to have another, and the rookie that had committed suicide and then I wasn't able to be there. And then I learned so much through therapy about like how suicide really affects someone. I mean, up until that point, it was very taboo in my culture and where I was from. Like people just didn't commit suicide. That was something taboo or something that happened somewhere else. So when that really became close to me, it was just a lot. So that just built my mental toughness. I just felt like after that year, I could basically get to anything. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You're listening to Toughness, a podcast where some of the world's best performers from different fields share their personal stories about pressure, stress, and success. This series of interviews is a product of the Human Performance Think Tank, with thanks to the U.S. Army and Booz Allen Hamilton. Coming up later in the show. I just separated life off the court from on the court. And for me, basketball was my getaway from like real life. So damn proud. One of the coaches that I've been working with in the lead up to these Olympics has been emphasizing, particularly because of the COVID uncertainty and going to Tokyo amidst all that, and even just an Olympics by itself, everything's very unpredictable. And yeah. he has been banging on about this quote from Charles Darwin. It's, I'm going to paraphrase because I don't know the exact words, but it's something along the lines of, in the end, the winner isn't the, the strongest, the fastest, the one who can last the longest. It's the, he who's the most flexible and adaptable. Right. And that's he or she. That's Charles Darwin talking way back when, when everyone just said he. But you've kind of described that there, your ability to adapt to a situation when it's uncertain. People who don't adapt, don't progress and sometimes don't even survive. And you were able to get through that. 
You mentioned therapy. Was that something that you did at the time or that something that you did further down to try and deal with what was the residue of that time for you? How, where did that come from? Well, I got drafted by the WNBA and I have to give credit to the NBA and the WNBA. I'm firmly, you know, I do believe that they were aware that the players transitioning from the ABL to the WNBA, they recognized that that transition was difficult. So they had just a team of people once we got drafted, like if we wanted to talk to someone. So I chose to talk with someone about my past teammate that had committed suicide. And she gave me tools to help me get through that. And so I was so happy I did that. And for me, like my family, no one ever talked about therapy, but the way that they presented it to us and to the draftees, it's like, hey, these are tools to help you get through stuff. And for me, I hadn't had anyone close to me die. Like my my grandmothers and everyone was still alive, like from my small town. So I didn't have like, you know, a mom die or dad, anybody close to me, like where I experienced, had to even really experience death. So I was very fortunate in that situation. So they had talked about death in your family and that kind of stuff. And so that was, that's what kind of drew me in. Like, I do have an issue. Like, I, it wasn't mental illness. Like, I wasn't feeling like I was going to talk to a psychologist because I had a mental disorder. It was just like, yeah, my best friend committed suicide. And I, I was blaming myself, you know, because I felt mm. like, what could I have done? If I should, could I have called her? Did I need to call her more? Like, we played phone tag sometimes. And I'm like, what if I would have kept trying to call back? You know, so... The therapist gave me tools and taught me, like, this is what everyone feels when someone commits suicide. And that's why it's so detrimental to families, because people start blaming themselves. So once that's why I was therapy really helped me with that situation. Yeah. So you mentioned therapy definitely helped you with that situation. And it is really, you know, props to the WNBA for providing those services for reading the tea leaves, so to speak. Do you think that it had any impact on your performance from there? Or they were pretty separate worlds for you. It helped you settle down your guilt and move on from the trauma of your friend dying by suicide. But it, did that drip feed into how you performed? Did it give you tools that helped you on the court? No, for me, and that's what I'm, I'm trying to learn more about now. I'm glad you mentioned that as a coach. For me, and I can't say for all players, but I just separated life off the court from on the court. And for me, basketball was my getaway from like real life. I don't know that if a lot of young athletes do that now, you know, mm. I don't know if they can separate the two. So I don't really feel like I ever needed therapy. Like not to say that I didn't have things going on in my life, but it's just like, I was looking forward to those two hour practices or three hour practices. Like, you know, whether my boyfriend broke up with me or somebody hurt my feelings or family problems or whatever is like, that was my escape. So I never really needed therapy to help me like not yeah. deal with off course stuff. So for me, no, and, and I mean, nothing no. ever bothered me on the court. And that's what drew me to the court. That's what drew me to basketball. That's what made me feel free. It's kind of like entertainers when we're, when they're, you know, in their, during their concert, like that two hours. Is, that's when you're alive and you're in control. You're and everything's good. <laughs> yeah. Everything is good. So that's how I treated my sport. And I can't say that for all athletes, but. That was what basketball did for me. Yeah. So both the role of this comes up often in these sort of conversations, particularly with elite level performance, is the role of coaches or mentors or in some cases therapists, counsellors, is a really key one often in, in shaping people both off and on their field of play. And so you've mentioned one there who helped you with a significant issue. 
How about any others that you look at along the way where you're like, okay, that support, whether it was provided formally by the league, WNBA props for putting a therapist in there and, and providing the support that was needed at the time. But are there other helpers along your journey that you look at and that you actually consider, like, do you think some of those people without knowing it at the time have kind of shaped you towards being a coach yourself? You, you are effectively one of those people now. I just believe coming in the league with a lot of the older, uh, I won't say older, older, but like the vets of the league and the women that pioneered their way when, you know, basketball wasn't cool for women. The United States was pretty much against women playing sports. So I had a lot of veteran women mentors that were coaches, that were players. Like when I went in the league, the players were like, we got to build this league. So there was a foundation there for me there was a foundation for me to do my best and for they were great role models and the coaches were great role models. Like this is what we're trying to build. And so I came from that era. So there, I mean, there are too many people to name, but it was just kind of like, this is what we're doing and this is what we're trying to build. And so you were a part of that. You were a part of that and you learned their stories. And then to be able to understand the history of like, you know, I'm complaining about something. And then you can hear them say, we didn't have this. You know, so you to recognize the step of how the progress of women's basketball, then you appreciate it and you try to, you know, do your part to to make it even better. So there mm. there were countless people that I could, you know, say really helped and mentored me. And obviously my college coach, uh, rest in peace, Coach K. Yao, was obviously extremely instrumental and one of the big pioneers of women's basketball in North Carolina. And so a lot of what I did, I wanted to make her proud, not only myself and my family, but just all the sacrifices that I know she put into it. It's kind of like you have that in the back of your head. So I kind of say she's like my basketball parent. Like, you don't want to let your parents down, then I didn't want to let my basketball parents. (laughs) I forgot I left out the parents there. That's the other group of of guiders and leaders alongside coaches and, and other mentors, so to speak. And you mentioned... A couple of things there that I think are underappreciated when we talk about support services or coaches or anyone who's helping us along our path, even if it is just a friend, I refer to it as the three Ps. So sometimes we think of a coach as like their job is to provide us a path. Here's the way to do this, right? Here's the how. Here's what to do right now. And while that is one P, there are two very important, perhaps sometimes even more important ones, which is you've mentioned the purpose as we're going to build this league. So that even when we don't know how, but let's just find a way, right? Let's they, they help you stick to it. And the other part was perspective. Like, hey, you're complaining about the shitty three-star hotel room we're in? We had to pay for our own one-star flea-bitten motel room on the side of the road to get this thing going. And that helps, put thing, helps you stay in the moment instead of getting caught on technically irrelevant details. So I just wanted to really highlight that there. Let me ask, play off that a little bit. In your role as a coach now, how much time or attention do you pay to each of those three? There's obviously a lot of time when we're preparing for games, playing games, reviewing games, at practice. It's a lot about the how. How are we going to win this game? How am I going to help you get better? All these like the technical, tactical stuff, right? Sometimes physical. Right. But there's also elements of your coaching that are about, here's why we're trying to do this. And, yo, let me give you a reality check. Like, you might think you're in deep shit right now, but I had my eyeball poked out of its socket one time, so suck it up. (laughs) How much do you feel like, what's the balance for you in your role as a coach? I think I have overall a good balance. I always will be a visionary. I always, there's a strong foundation, the principles that 
I still believe on. I know everyone says there's the old school and the new school, and I believe that I successfully intertwined both. I don't think there's, I mean, there's not, there isn't a new school without the old school. And it's just like the old school is the foundation. There are just some fine foundational principles that can't change when it comes to sports. That's what how are I those feel. for you? What are those for you, the old school foundational principles? Um, just the simple work ethic, just work ethic, accountability. Accountability is really big. Accountability. I mean, you can't at first accountability goes before work ethic because mm-hmm. you can't hold your players accountable. I mean, it's just going to be a mess. Like uh, you don't need a coach pretty much, you know, because then you're, <laughs> you're changing the hierarchy of, okay, every sport, just go out there and play, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you don't right. need to coach. So accountability, work ethic, and probably the third thing would just be the culture, the culture, you know, developing a strong culture. And, and that has to go with the foundations too, but just having a strong culture, being holding players and athletes accountable, and then the, the work ethic, like how are we going to work? So those are just three things that come to mind, obviously, that just don't change. You know, yeah. they, they don't change. I think what people should start saying with the new school is I think there are ways to communicate <laughs> in coaching a little bit different than when I yeah you know. yeah and I, I think that's across the board because parents now are being more communicative with their kids my parents what they say went and that's how it was <laughs> once you went to practice whatever the coach said you never ask why yeah why? You know, why well why do we have to you know you know and so I think that's more the new school. And so I think I kind of came in to the beginning of that. So I kind of got, I wasn't just strictly old school, old school, because I was able to get into a new philosophies with coaches and being able to talk to your coach and, and communicate. And so for me, I think I have a great balance of that, but I, I'll, I'll never leave some of the old school tricks off. Like it's just, it's just part of the foundation of sport. Yeah. And especially young athletes, they still need it. I think because people have tried to go, and this is my personal opinion, I think because people have tried to go so far away from the old school philosophy that now kids are really, young athletes especially, are really struggling mentally. And, you know, I will say one thing about our old school coaches, like they, we were mentally tough Mm. (laughs) as far as athletes. Now off the court, which off the court has a lot to do with your family and you know, they got to raise you, you know, your coach. But as far as being on the court, on the field, those coaches did a great job of helping you become mentally tough and teaching you about perseverance and how you have to make sacrifices. Yeah. yeah. Um, And so I think that's somewhat missing today because there's a thin line of like being aware of their mental health and drawing that line between mental health and mental toughness on the court. How do you balance that? Because that's really interesting. I was asked to write an op-ed on that exact topic, particularly with what's happened at the Olympics and with Naomi Osaka in the previous months. How do you, as a coach, and particularly sensitive as a coach who also went through some things as a player, so you've lived dichotomy of it can be really tough and I still have to perform, how do you go about handling that? Are you still learning how to handle that? I'm still learning. I'm trying to you know, listen to podcasts. I love reading, so I'm actually looking for a book that will give me the tools to kind of change my language, because I think everything is how you communicate. And like I said, back in the day, coaches could say and do whatever. And as an athlete, we didn't take it personal. 
we took it as like the coach has got to be hard. And now today, like players don't look at it like that. Players automatically look at, they take everything personal, which is a little bit different. So for me, I just want to be able to be open-minded when players are going through things and allow, allow myself to get to know them as people off the court, which our coaches did as well. They were super supportive off the court, you know, back in the day. But on the court, there was just a standard. You know, these mm. two hours are mine. And I totally get it. And I wish it was still more like that today. But now it's just <laughs> encompassing everything. You know, you might have to really understand if you need to let this player, like, not be on the court today. And you have to kind of open your little box in your mind. And I'm not, I won't say for me, and I know a lot of coaches who don't even want to coach anymore because they find that very challenging. And I'm not going to say it's easy for me either because I know that I wouldn't have been as great as I am without some of those things that I learned. Mm. And so you want to teach others what it takes to be the best and to stay. And then now you got to, just add something to it to kind of get creative to get it across because how long have you been coaching now for how long you been coaching i've been coaching i've been coaching this is my second year with the WNBA. i Uh coached a year in college i coached a year in the nba g league and i coached two years in high school so i've been on every level yeah you have and you and it's interesting you've been through the the men's side as well as the women's side but before i go to the actual question i was getting to there how's the difference the, the shift from coaching men to women, is there much difference or are they just humans and they're, you know, the buttons are still the same? The buttons are all still the same. I will say that guys are a little bit easier to challenge because men initially, and I've learned this from women who work corporate, they just feel like they can do it all. Like, oh, you need me to do that? Yeah, I got it. You know, and they could have no clue, but, but they will never <laughs> let you know. Females are the same way across the board. Like they want to have their, you know, eyes dotted and their T's crossed before they, you know, give, you, give you, yeah, before they go. Guys don't have to have any of that. And they'll just, <laughs> you know, off the whim, <laughs> you know, and just like, figure it out later. So for me, that was the same thing. Like I could challenge them with any move and, you know, they're going to work on it, try to do it. Yeah. I feel like female athletes have to be a little bit more confident in their skill set. You know, they're, they're well aware they're not going to go down and do a 360 dunk. Even mm-hmm. if guys can't do that, they're going to try halfway do it. They go, you know what I mean? And it's like, yeah, yeah. I got it next time. Give me it's also time, a little bit know? of the uh, the G League, <laughs> like that special age bracket when you're in the G League. It's like you kind yeah. of think maybe you're a little better than you are at that point and yeah. there's so much possibility. But the reason I was asking that question more about the, the whole duration of your coaching career is I'm curious about how much you look at the coaches – ability let me say it a different way by sharing a story there's a player who i worked with in the nba who initially because i was new to the nba and i wanted to make sure i didn't screw it up and also partly because of the way everyone else treated this individual it seemed apparent that like you had to be really careful or you had to be like oh you know you gotta be nice and make sure you ask him and get into the right space blah blah blah, blah. anyway i spent more than the first season with him and eventually i was i was in a place of trust enough where i could say to him Hey, what's going on with you and that that coach? Like, why are you not responding there? I know you well enough to know that there's there's something weird there. He's like, I just want to be coached. I don't want to be friends. I don't want to like you. You don't have to like me. I just want you to keep me accountable and drive me. And I was like, holy shit, everyone's treating this guy the wrong way. 
because all he wants is actually what you've described as the old school there. Like they actually want that, but everyone feels like we have to go the nice way about it, right? How much of your experience as a coach have you seen that where you actually tap into eventually like, oh, shit, they actually want to be pushed. Like they don't want us to treat them with kid gloves. That's how everyone treats them and they're kind of sick of it. I just realized that I think that's the cool thing of being a former player and coaching. That's never been outside of my my mm. wheelscape or my wheelhouse because I know that's what I needed to become the best. And I know coaching in the pros, they just want to be the best or they want they may not want to be the best, but they want that next contract. <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. like they you know, they want to stay in the league. So there's ways to do that. And that's why I always knew like yeah, I mean, they might, and that's what, I like, you know, coaches are like, oh, they might curse you out or they might, uh, we're not friends. You know, I don't need the players to like me. I do feel, though, like, especially in the pros, I want the players to know that I care about them. Mm-hmm. And I will say that about old school coaches. I never felt like old school coaches didn't care about us as people. I just felt like during the practice times, that was it. And then yeah. back in the day, parents were – it's not, I mean, the world has changed so much and evolved so much. So, you know, you don't have moms are out working and people, everyone's working and kids don't really have that family environment that a lot of us had when we were younger. So it was just like our parents sent us to the coach, listen to the coach. So he had, you know, he or she had that freedom to just coach. Now yeah. parents are working and the coach is like <laughs> taking on a little, a lot. And a lot got, I don't know if this is, I don't know <laughs> if it's gotten to this level yet in the WNBA, but the amount of, Players who have their own entourage and their own skills coach and their agent wants to be involved and they're, oh wow yeah it's just way too much yeah it's a lot <laughs> and so I think that's something that I think about daily and I question myself you know am I prepared for this but I feel like all of my experience throughout my professional career obviously have helped me and obviously I went through all that to become it's going to help me become the coach that hopefully I. Um, become and evolve into one day. So I just draw off those experiences. You are listening to Toughness. And if you're this far into the episode, there's a good chance you like the show. You can add to the conversation with the whole review, rate, subscribe, and share thing. If this helps just one person who needs to hear what our guests share to get them through today, it'll all be worth it. Stay tuned for more coming up, including... He told me I didn't have the attitude to be able to work in this alpha environment. He told me that I just didn't have a voice. So damn proud. What is your your hope for not just your career, like what are you trying to achieve, obviously, but secondly to that, as you've described the evolution of the women's game in the professional level that you've been a part of growing and are now kind of stewarding as an assistant coach, what do you hope that that actually achieves not only for future basketball players, future female basketball players, but potentially the impact on society that you've, we've seen in some of the social justice stuff over the last year or two. Very broad question, but what, what do you see as the future, as a visionary? Well, my vision for the WNBA is to become the NBA, basically. I mean, they have the blueprint, and hopefully I'll be allowed to see it, you know, see that come to fruition. But I do think that women's basketball is great. It's been great. A lot of people don't know the history of our game. They don't know how the old school players played. But um, it's very similar to the NBA guys. There were really great women's basketball players, but just no one knows about them. And so for me to see the evolution of the WNBA become 
a really household name, not just as a organization, but as individual teams, that's my big vision for them. And to hopefully be a part of it and be a head coach or GM and, or even own a team one day in the WNBA. And uh, also like just obviously outside the evolution for that is just to incorporate having more women head coaches as the league expands and as we get more teams. And that's what I'm saying, like the NBA has what, is it 42, 36, 37 teams? I'm not sure, 38. I'm 38, not sure. Yeah. So it's like, I would love for us to get to that because it provides more opportunities for women to coach because for some reason, women can't coach men. So we have a very small tunnel, <laughs> you know, for women to coach on the pro level or even in college. And so we have a lot of women competing with each other for a very small amount of opportunities um, mm -hmm. because we hadn't crossed over into coaching men in college or even on the recreation level. Like men have the opportunity to coach on either side. And yeah. I just want to make this point because I feel like sometimes men are intimidated of women coming into the NBA or women, you know, trying to coach men. And like when I coached in the G league, it was, that was another, <laughs> I would say opportunity to build my toughness. Kind of like you. Actually, I'm going to make more time for that. Cause I want to, I want to ask that. Like, how is it stepping into a field where people kind of like, it's the, the new age exclusion, right? Where it's like, you, you ain't welcome here. You ain't, like, th this isn't for you, which is ridiculous. I, I had the privilege of being around when Lizzie, Lindsay Harding came through the 76ers while I was there. Okay. She was only there for a brief window because then I think Portland took her on full-time. Sacramento, yeah. But you could see that she could coach her ass off, partly because right. she played so long and she was a good player, but she had no fear talking to the players. It was a little startling to them, but she knew what she was talking about. She could get at it, and it was clear that she's, she has the, the ability potentially more so than some of the male coaches who were in the building. But I also observed some of the resistance that she experiences, right? And so I'm curious for you to talk to that. How did you experience that in the G League and potentially with your future career of like, maybe you could coach in the NBA, why not? How does that, as you said so delicately, it gave you a chance to reveal your toughness? Like what's the toughest part of that for you? Well, I think you were like, I, I was a little bit like you when you say you got into the NBA. I, you didn't want to mess up. You know, you wanted to show others their respect because this is the highest level. So for me, that was definitely the highest level for me, higher than the WNBA. So I was the same way. I wanted to soak up, like, what am I getting into and also not mess up, <laughs> not say anything <laughs> stupid, you know. And I actually got a quote. I received a quote before I went to coach in the G League, and it was from a, a really well-known, very good top NBA head, head coach. And he told me that I lacked on-court presence. He told me I didn't have the attitude to be able to work in this alpha environment. He told me that, that I just didn't have a voice, and he just didn't see me as a candidate to coach in the league. And Man, that turned quick. I thought you were going to tell me some inspirational story about this coach <laughs> wanting to support me. He's basically ripped you to shreds. Fuck yeah, that guy, he firstly. ripped me. <laughs> but secondly, <laughs> he ripped me to pieces. Wow. And I, first of all, I called my mom and my dad. I sent them what he had texted me. You know, they're your parent. Well, I had great parents, so they were like, "You can do it." You, mm. you know, and so. As a part of my mental toughness, I took it like I took everything of like always being counted out. 
And so I turned everything into constructive criticism. And then I took what I didn't like and I just said, hey, that's his opinion. And you're right, I'm not an alpha, but my coaching style is my coaching style. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm never going to be that. But I knew I could be effective in the NBA and in the G League and with the guys. And so once I got the opportunity and I was able to give them my knowledge and work with the staff and actually be on the sidelines and be in practice, it all changed. And for me, you know, it was a lot of people would have quit when they got that text. A lot of people would have just, I mean, it was terrible. I'm I'm not going to say that was something easy to handle and to bounce back back from because I'm already nervous about coaching guys. (laughs) And then it was just, and this was like my second opportunity coaching outside of high school. So it was like, if he would have said that and I had coached in the WNBA for three or four years, or even if I had coached in college for four years and he told me that, then I would have been like, NBA isn't for me. I probably would have went back to college or the WNBA, but I hadn't even had an opportunity. Like, so maybe some of that stuff is true. Maybe his perspective was true, but that was my initial like outing. That was the first time I had competed coaching in the, at the draft combine and the G League tryouts and G League All-Stars. So that was my first time ever actually on the court. Mm. So it was back to being a, a fish among sharks and whales. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> big but, um, sharks and shark teeth. Yeah, big ones. You know, you, I mean, you've been there. Even guys feel that way. So, you know, if that would have been their first opportunity. So me as a female, it's just guys. like So just to be able to bounce back from that is just, it's again like I just know every experience is building me for where I will eventually end up and I love coaching the guys I love coaching in the G League I would love an opportunity to coach in the NBA but I'm definitely committed to the WNBA and and becoming a head coach but I would I mean I definitely enjoy being an assistant in the G League and I would welcome that opportunity again yeah let me ask you this question to to finish off on As I started my own coaching career, I had a mentor who was a a very senior, had been a head coach at another team, was then a senior assistant on the team with me. And unfortunately, he passed away due to cancer in like the start of our second season. It was pretty full on for all of us. But he, being the guy that he was, actually was open to spending time with me, sitting by his bedside as he received treatment, talking to me about coaching and what it meant. And one of the analogies he used was that coaching is like being a coach is like being a coffee cup because we were drinking coffee while we were doing it. He said, the purpose of the cup is not to hold on to what's inside it. It's to pour itself into something bigger, right? And that was his analogy for coaching and it's really informed how I go about things in my coaching. And I'm curious if you have a view as to like when you're working with the women you work with today at the WNBA and potentially moving forward like your time in the G League but potentially in the NBA, as a coach, what is it that you hope to pour into the people that you're responsible for for growing and building into obviously fine athletes but also fine young adults? What do you hope to leave behind as part of your legacy as a coach? Just a, a total overall leave them with a, a passion for the game. You know, I think too often with professional athletes, and we saw this with Simone maybe, you know, like when she said it's not fun anymore. For me – Professional basketball was not, it was fun for me. And I worked hard. And I, I think for me, I just want to leave that legacy. Like you chose this sport for a reason. And there are multiple reasons. 
But I think, you know, even when sometimes players say, you know, people say, oh, they just play for the money or whatever. I'm like, you, you still like it a little. You have to have some type of passion to go through all you do as a professional athlete. Yeah. It's just too much. Like there's and so I for me, when they're coached by me, I don't want to I don't want them to say, you know, when that when they played under me, I want them to know that they still had a passion and a love for the game. They still got their butts kicked and they worked hard, but you know, they left with having a love and a certain type of energy and appreciation for the game. And that's the type of legacy I want to leave. Now, I don't know that that's so alpha, but I think it's, it's I mean, that's, what I, that's what I want to leave. That's my No, opinion. but I think, I mean, for me, that's the great passion of yours to have is to give other people passion because it's so central to being able to push through tough times. If you do love something, it's much easier to stick with it than if it's just a thing that you do. And so firstly, I wanted to say thank you for joining us here Thank you for sharing your story, incredible uh, highs and, and lows along the way and, and still on the up and up as we continue to build the women's game and as you continue to impact so many lives. So thank you so much, Chastity Melvin, and good luck for the next season. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So why is it got to be so damn Yeah.